0: Her heart sprang, there, a good way off, thanks to a merciful God it was, materialized from nowhere in a moment. She knew it at once, however far, her own young figure, her own walk, her own dress and hat, had not her first sight of it been attracted so, changing, growing, it was coming up at her pace, doppelganger, doppelganger, her control began to give, she didn't run, lest it should, nor did it. She reached her gate, slipped through, went up the path. If it should be running very fast up the road behind her now? She was biting back the scream and fumbling for her key. Quiet! Quiet! A terrible good. She got the key into the keyhole. She would not look back. Would it click the gate? Or not? The door opened, and she was in, and the door banged behind her. She all but leant against it. Only the doppelganger might be leaning similarly on the other side. She went forward, her hand at her throat, up the stairs to her room, desiring, and with every atom of energy left, denying that her desire could be vain, that there should be left to her still, this one refuge in which she might find shelter. I was pointing out
1: last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
0: Welcome again to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, we'll promise we'll get to him, discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of Literature at Emanuel College and occasional medievalist. And joining me today, we have Sophie Burkhart, who plays around in the podcast world herself by musing on philosophy, theology, and literature in Beneath the Willow Tree. Sophie, how are you doing?
2: I am fantastic and excited to be here.
0: Great. Well, It's good to have you back after the Prince Caspian episode. Also, for the first time, we have David L. Carter, who is the author of the recently published novel, The Rat Reverend Clancy and the Seven Sacraments, along with four previous novels. David, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well and glad to be here. Thanks.
0: David reached out to us about Charles Williams related matters. I invited him to come on this podcast and talk Charles Williams with us. He very graciously accepted. So we're really glad to have him here. should be a fun conversation, founding member of the Inklings Variety Hour and Charles Williams Superfan. Megan Logston, it's good to see you.
3: Hello. It's been a while.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's great to have you back. Quick introduction to Descent Into Hell. Like Charles Williams' six other novels, Descent Into Hell is a spiritual thriller in which everyday decisions made by ordinary modern people hold profound moral and metaphysical meaning. Unlike most of Williams' other novels, the book features no enchanted object, no grail or a tarot deck that serves as a catalyst for redemption or damnation, though it does present a world infused with the supernatural, as the reading at the top shows. Its unconventional plot and lack of gimmick nearly cost the world what is in my view Williams's Williams' most mature and complex novel, with some of his finest prose and most dazzling theology. Turned down by his usual publisher, it was published in 1937 by Faber and Faber at the intercession of Williams' friend, the poet T.S. Eliot. Dissent is about the choice between escape or communion and a range of interactions in the fictional town of Battle Hill, whether deciding how to best read poetry or... How to React When Meeting Your Own Image, Walking Toward You. It is clear that for Williams, there's no such thing as a non-supernatural situation. Megan, Sophie, or David, did I leave anything out about the novel that you think is important to note as we move forward?
1: I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it, but this is different from his other novels in that there's not this occult paraphernalia but at the same time there is this pageantry so that may stand in in a certain sense for the the more occult magic this has a theater piece a liturgy that kind of holds everything together
0: yeah it's really interesting and megan you would know which novels precisely have some sort of magic object at the center or occult object in which novels off the top of my head i feel like all hallows eve this one and then the not so amazing novel, Shadows of Ecstasy, all don't have some sort of talisman or object or something like that. Is that right?
3: Yeah, definitely. War in Heaven, The Greater Trumps, um, and Many Dimensions all have some kind of object. I mean, you could argue Shadows of Ecstasy's object is Constantine, but... um, You you could argue that he's the the weird object that that's in that book, but yeah, no descent into hell. It definitely breaks with his typical form up to this point. Like David was saying, it's it's very much free of a direct occult influence, I guess, even though it's still there. His love of ceremony is still clearly present in the novel. It's all over it. There's that that play, the whole play bit. This one definitely is is different in that regard. Which I mean, I. I find kind of fascinating and I really wish he had lived longer so that maybe, maybe this is more of the direction he would have, he would have gone in instead of feeling like he needed to have some kind of MacGuffin in all of his books. But unfortunately we get this one and we get all houses. Steve doesn't really have an have an object at the center of it either.
0: Yeah, and I think I think David's point that there is a kind of liturgy here anyway, right? In the form of the play is 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 really interesting and probably worth exploring as we get into it. Part of what we do on this show is we try, where we can, to talk about the way that other inklings responded to inklings' work. And my Bible, very often for this, is The Company They Keep by Diana Pavlick glyer She wrote about Descending to Hell that C.S. Lewis expressed gratitude for it, and he. He observed that in sheer writing, I think you've gone up, as we examiners say, a whole class. Chapter two is, in my opinion, your high watermark so far. You have completely overcome a certain flamboyance, which I always thought your chief danger. This is crisp as grape nuts, hard as a hammer, clear as glass. He adds, I shall come back to it again and again. A thousand thanks for writing it. And in general, this letter from Lewis is worth reading a bit more. One thing that he says is, in the first place, I find the form of evil that you're dealing with much more real than the evil with a big E. That appears in the other books and which though i enjoy it like pantomime red fire and a story i do not believe in uh, but your Gamora is the real thing and we'll get to that and wentworth is a truly tragic study and he said he was also glad he's gotten off the amulet or a sacred object theme so yeah i thought that was an interesting note of appreciation but what about you all When did you first read Descent into Hell? And what was your reaction then?
3: I think it was around 2014, maybe 2015. It was not my first Williams novel, but I read The Place of the Lion first in undergrad. Went completely over my head. Did not understand a word of it. I read it because Lewis said that he uh, really liked it. And so I kind of gave up on Charles Williams for a while. Just kind of forgot about him. And then I read Descent into Hell, a lot of it still went over my head, but I think I was I was better able to grasp some of the concepts in it. And even if I wasn't able to fully grasp it, something about writing uh, captivated me. There was just something in it that spoke to me on a deep level. It was very formative for me and in my faith journey at the time. I credit Charles Williams for helping me to stick with Christianity and not totally abandon it completely at the time I was going through some, I know it's a hot topic, but a deconstruction, if you will, but reading Williams and others, give the church another chance, basically. Basically. Yeah, that's when that's when I read
0: Descent into Hell. That's awesome. For me, Descent into Hell is so powerful and so fascinating. And on the level of Megan's absolutely right. And like, even when I don't know what in the world Williams is talking about, the poetry of his prose, it's so focused and it's so uh, hypnotic, even though there are so many things about this novel that should not work. But for whatever reason, Williams being Williams, it does. So I don't know, anybody else before we go on?
2: I think it's fun because I'm the odd man out. This is my first time having ever read Descent Into Hell and ever read Charles Williams. So I feel like I knew a little bit about him before I read The Company They Keep and other things about the Inklings and stuff. And so it's been a fun adventure. Like you guys are saying, I love the prose. I think that's just my favorite part about it. Just reading it out loud and hearing the words is is such a delight. And after like the first chapter or two, I went and I was like, I got to look up some of his key points of theology before I come back. So now I feel like once I did that, everything makes more sense having those bigger themes and pictures behind my head already floating there.
0: You can tell that he's a poet when you're reading his prose. Every word is so carefully chosen. (laughs) And go on to talk about the first chapter and during this hour we have the very modest goal of getting through two chapters and we'll see if we if we make that or not so chapter one the Magus Zoroaster let's go ahead and just start with the beginning you have this drama rehearsal it undoubtedly needs Peter Stanhope said, a final pulling together, but there's hardly time for that before July, and if you're willing to take it as it is, why? He made a gesture of presentation and dropped his eyes, thus missing the hasty reciprocal gesture of gratitude with which Mrs. Perry immediately replied on behalf of the dramatic culture of Battle Hill. Behind and beyond her, the culture, some 30 faces, unessentially exhibited to each other by the May sunlight, settled to attention naturally, efficiently, critically, solemnly, reverently. The grounds of the manor house expanded beyond them. The universal sky sustained the whole. Peter Stanhope began to read his play. Battle Hill is one of the new estates which had been laid out after the war. It lay about 30 miles north of London and took its title from the more ancient name of the broad rise of ground which it covered. It had a quiet ostentation of comfort and culture. The poor who had created it had been as far as possible excluded, nor, except as hired servants, were they permitted to experience the bitterness of other stares. The civil wars which existed there, however, however bitter, were conducted with all bourgeois propriety. Politics, religion, art, science, grouped themselves, and courteously competed for numbers and reputation. This summer, however, had seen a spectacular triumph of drama, for it had become known that Peter Stanhope had consented to allow the restless talent of the hill to produce his latest play. So that's the setting of the scene of this first chapter and really of the whole book. My question for you all is why begin this book with the rehearsal of a play. Why, why do you think this is an appropriate setting to talk about a descent into hell? You know, leaving aside bad experiences with, with drama productions. What do you all think?
1: Well, this is kind of a stretch, but when I encountered this book maybe for the first time, it did remind me of Virginia Woolf's Between the Acts, which starts in exactly the same way, not verbatim, but just in terms of the scene, almost exactly the same thing. So it makes me think maybe it's some kind of modernist trope, or maybe it's a preoccupation of writers at this time with the act of production.
0: Yeah. Why Why do you think they're interested in this? Like, Why start a novel about... About significant ideas, important ideas, descents into hell with people trying to get together and put on some sort of play. It's almost like the antithesis of that old cliche where everyone's like, I know we'll put on a show and it's supposed mm-hmm. to you know, save everything. And this seems to be setting up at least some characters damnation and other characters salvation.
1: I don't know, and- maybe the, the cinema kind of taking off during the 30s, especially with sound being integrated, really was making people think about the printed word and the spoken word and works of art and that sort of thing.
3: I think, too, there's an element... Drama to Williams is so important. He wrote masks for... (laughs) his publishing house to perform. There's a ceremony to it. It wasn't just, hey, I wrote a script and let's put on the show. There was something inherently spiritual about it, almost maybe even magical about it. And so I think it, it makes sense for him to open this way. And you could almost think of Peter Stanhope as ca- kind of a stand in for Charles Williams. He probably would deny it. I think he did try to deny it at one point.
0: Doesn't Stanhope <laughs> at some point put in the under the mercy line?
3: That he talks about bearing one another's burdens. We'll get to that later. But <laughs> (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it's all in there. So he's kind of a stand in for Charles Williams. But like you said, it's this is a novel called Descent into Hell. And it's setting up this great human drama and stage plays are such a great vehicle for human drama. I actually just went yesterday to the Shakespeare Tavern and watched them put on Much Ado About Nothing. And I just was reminded of the power of, of a stage play. Um, it's different from movies or reading a novel. And so it's, it is very much about the, the drama, these grand ideas. And so, I, I mean, I think it's a fitting opening uh, to the novel.
2: I feel like whenever there's a play in a story, that's really a big thing to key in on. Like Shakespeare, when he has a play within a play. There's some really pivotal thing about that or even Mansfield Park, the play kind of determines who the characters are and what their virtues or vices are, how they're going to go about virtue. I'm wondering too, if the idea of a play takes so much communal effort to put on. So you're not just sitting yourself in a community of like, we all live here in this town, but like this is a community having to come together and like bear each other's burdens and work together to produce this thing. And since that's such a central theme of the story, that feels like a really great place to start.
1: That actually reflects the first sentence, which is always, a good key to important themes. It undoubtedly needs a final pulling together and so that could speak to the need for the community
0: to pull together. Yeah, absolutely. This is a drama of the city, capital C city pulling together um, and, and, and becoming more, you know, the heavenly city manifesting itself through the earthly city. And Megan, to your point, I think, yeah, absolutely. As someone who organized masks for his workplace, right, he's trying to redeem the mundane through this kind of liturgy where ordinary people end up Taking on these roles that somehow involve them in a transcendent experience, right, and shape mundane reality. There's such a there's such a strong religious element, especially to the kinds of plays that are increasingly in fashion. You know, in the 1930s, at least among you know, Williams's sat T. S. Eliot has done *Murder in the Cathedral*. Williams, I think, by now has done *Thomas Cranmer of of Canterbury*. There are choruses in at least *Murder in the Cathedral*. I've not read Thomas Cranmer of Canterbury uh, unfortunately so it's I'm not It's so th- good. <laughs> oh, I have to- I read his play about Lichfield, but I forget what it's called. He's tapping into this sort of religiously oriented type of drama that is becoming more popular at this point uh, that has a chorus, right? It's, it's very much a murder in the cathedral type of play except it's a pastoral play, which is interesting, which is is a kind of play that's that takes place in the country, you know, that ends in people getting married and involves shepherds and shepherdesses and apparently according to according to this first chapter woodland tree spirits, although the precise nature of said spirits is a matter of controversy. I I don't know if anyone, if any of Williams's contemporaries was attempting a pastoral in this kind of style. You know, considering that Peter Stanhope at one point, according to Diana Pavlik-Lyer, was a uh, pen name that Williams was playing around with when he wrote judgment at calmsford probably safe to assume that peter stanhope is kind of supposed to be like williams or at least stanhope is like williams ideal but a really neat thing about stanhope is that he is even though he's the great poet of battle hill of this of the city he's um i mean i think and and this is part of what drama requires of you right or requires of a writer is you have to not insist on your own vision of what things are gonna look like. You can't be tyrannical, you have to kind of let it go and let other people screw it up if they want to, right? This seems to be what's happening to a very large extent as they discuss different choices that they can make with the dramatic poem he's written, trying to find ways to bring it to life and to make it vivid for the audience, but they're coming up with lots of ideas that he probably disagrees with and he's trying very hard to hold himself back and not interfering with their production even though he's the author. He seems to be kind of magnanimous and humble Which is important in a poem like Descent into Hell, where people being able to come together, human communities acting like heavenly communities, seems to require a degree of of humility.
3: It meshes well with, like Sophie was saying, his vision for the city and for bearing one another's burdens. Being part of the body of Christ means something deeply to William's It's not just a a nice phrase that we say. The the play is very illustrative of that idea of coming together. We all have our free will. We can affect the overall vision by the choices that we make. And, you know, God lets us do that. <laughs> and sometimes we mess it up and sometimes we we put on something beautiful. And so the overall cohesion in the novel works if you actually do sit down and think really hard about it. It On the surface, yes, like you were saying, Chris, sometimes you're like, I don't understand what any of this has to do with anything else. Why are we having this discussion about dryads in your play? Like, I don't know, what are we talking about? You know, <laughs> But it, there is a cohesion here, and I think it's it's brilliantly done.
0: moments or notable parts from this first part of the Magus where they're basically just discussing how are we going to bring this poet's vision to life, completely threatening anyway to destroy it.
3: I actually really liked (laughs) this bit where so Adela is says irony. It's a kind of comment, isn't it, Mr. Stanhope, on futility? The forest and everything and the princess and her lover, so transitory. Stanhope shook his head. There was a story invented by himself that the Times had once sent a representative to ask for explanations about a new play and that Stanhope, in his efforts to explain it, had found after four hours that he had only succeeded in reading it completely through aloud, which, he maintained, was the only way of explaining it. I, I That's something that Williams would say. <laughs> it's just like, listen, don't ask me to explain it. I'll just read it to you. And there you go. That one stood out to me. I, I think that's, there's that like, Williams is funny sometimes, you know? Yeah. He can he can be pretty hilarious sometimes, but uh, yeah. yeah, that was kind of a, a minute of that Williams humor that I really like.
0: And that's a poet for you, right? <laughs> you, you can't really commit the heresy of paraphrase, right? But we should probably explain for our readers, who are the main characters here?
3: Adela. She's not like the star of the play. I'm trying to remember like how she fits in there. Yeah.
0: At this point, it looks like she's going to be cast as the princess in the past right, right, right. world, M- Maybe.
3: And she'll become much more important later <laughs> in the novel mm-hmm. once we get into, we get more into wentworth's character but yeah she's part of the play
0: she's one of the most talks about like kind of the cultural scene at battle hill right and this is an amateur production right so they're involved in trying to put on this poet's play perhaps much in the way that people at amen house would be involved in putting on charles williams's play you've got mrs perry who's the director and seems to be sort of the ranking drama person in Battle Hill, right? This town, this fictional town that they live in. There's Adela Hunt, who is a young sort of up and coming avant-garde fan of the most recent trends in poetry. There's her sort of almost beau, at least her friend, Hugh. And then very slowly after Myrtle Fox, whose view of art is more that everything should be very, very charming and represent nature as being incredibly comforting and sweet you have Pauline Anstruther who's the real star in, in a lot of ways of the book, you know, in a, in a very sort of quiet way makes herself known here to Stanhope. And Pauline Anstruther by the way is the one who at the uh, at the top of the show is having this strange experience with meeting her own image walking towards her on the street and being terrified by it. And that's sort of central fear of her life. But yeah, any other moments that you think are significant from this first chapter?
3: This is where we first get the idea, he introduces the idea of terrible good, which is a running theme throughout this book. Stanhope was standing by silent while Mrs. Perry communed with her soul and with one or two of her neighbors on the possibilities of dressing the chorus. He turned his head and answered that nature is terribly good. Yes, Miss Fox, you do mean terribly. Why certainly, Miss Fox said terribly dreadfully very yes stanhope said again very only you must forgive me it comes from doing so much writing but when i say terribly i think i mean full of terror a dreadful goodness i don't see how goodness can be dreadful miss fox said with a shade of resentment in her voice if things are good, they're not terrifying, are they? It was you who said terribly, Stanhope reminded her with a smile. I only agreed. And if things are terrifying, Pauling put in, her eyes half closed and her head turned away as if she asked a casual question rather of the world than of him. Can they be good? He looked down on her. Yes, surely, he said with more energy. The first mention of that whole idea of, of terrible good. Of course, Miss Fox objects to <laughs> objects to that. <laughs> Because everything is sweet and and not terrifying at all um mm-hmm. if it's good. It's honestly an idea that I think. I mean, I'm fascinated by it. That's one of the one of the main ideas in this book that I really love. Uh, Lewis took it and ran with it in Narnia specifically. When it comes to Aslan being he's not safe but he's good. Or like the scene in the Don Trotter where he cures Eustace of being a dragon. It's uh, he's like having to claw at his scales and it's it's a painful experience. So it's terrible and it's terrifying in a way. But it, it's good ultimately i often think about that with especially with the way sometimes that we depict god and jesus specifically of he's meek and mild which which he is in some ways but also there's this holy terror that's present and that's such an important dimension of god and how we should approach him
0: yeah this is definitely a central really important part of an idea that runs throughout this book Partly, at least, Williams is being snarky about the way young people talk with all the dreadfully good, terribly good. He's trying to, like, recapture the original meaning of those words, right? So they're not just talking like characters from Woodhouse. They really are saying something that's true, that, yes, goodness can be terrible. Any other thoughts on this, on, on terribly good for now?
2: I think this is my favorite theme in the book. And and I almost think of it if there's sort of two dimensions to the terribly good. So I feel like in one sense, you kind of have the notion of the sublime, which obviously is more focused on beauty than good. But it's like so beautiful that it, it inspires awe and almost a sense of terror, like, you know, a mountain or I'm just thinking of those sorts of things. So I feel like that could be one dimension are so overcome that it's, it's sort of like terrible, which I feel like is when we're confronted with God, he's so good and, and magnificent. There's so much about it that it, there's a sort of righteous terror that comes in there. But then also what you guys have also been talking about of terrible good, of goodness that involves some sort of aspect that is terrible. I mean, even like as we're recording this, we're getting close to Easter, which Good Friday is the ultimate terrible good of the pain and horror that Christ encounters on the cross. But then also and I have to bring George MacDonald because he's like my favorite of... Lilith is such an exploration of the terrible good. And you have, maybe you're making me think of this with Eustace, the dragon, and you have Mara and Lilith and everything that these people that Lilith has to encounter before she can repent and be redeemed, all the suffering that she has to endure and how terrible that is, but how good it is. And it it has to be that way. It has to be terrible in order for it to be good. Otherwise she would never come to repentance. So I, I think this is such an interesting exploration and It's so neat. And how he even gets to the point, I think Stanhope says, like, how could our terror measure the omnipotence? As if like, just because we're terrified, that therefore means we can measure what is good or not by our level of terror. So I think it brings us to a level of humility as well, which is cool.
0: Yeah, that's well said. And I especially like the link to the idea of the sublime, that, that this is overwhelming infinite goodness, which like any characteristic of God is going to be too much for us to take and and is going to necessarily sanctify us through killing us are our tremors to measure the omnipotence which is a very williamsian thing to say Uh, peter stanhope has her opinions of course about the way things should be as does Myrtle Fox. They're trying to figure out what to do with the chorus. Miss Fox wants it to be a chorus of nature powers. Stanhope has left it too vague for their liking partly because they're trying to stage it. You know they're thinking about leaf spirits arguing back and forth and as they're doing this Pauline Anstruther is thinking about her own unique problem. You know, and she's, she's thinking about this phrase, a terrible good, and how can anything terrifying be good? Because she's dealt with this terror in her life several times, right? She had never considered good as a thing of terror. And certainly she had not supposed a certain thing of terror in her own secret life as any possible good, nor now. Yet there had been an inhumanity in the great and moving lines of the chorus. She thought with an anger, generous in its origin, but proud and narrow in its conclusion, that not many of the audience really cared for poetry or for Stanhope's poetry, perhaps none but she. He was a great poet, one of the very few. But what would he do if one evening he met himself coming up the drive doppelganger the learned call it which was no comfort another poet had thought of it she had had to learn the lines at school as an extra task because of undone work the magus zoroaster my dead child met his own image walking in the garden she had never done the imposition for she had had nightmares that night after reading the lines and had to go sick for days But she had always hated Shelley since for making it so lovely, when it wasn't loveliness but Black Panic. Shelley never seemed to suggest that the good might be terrible. What would Peter Stanhope do? What could he if he met himself? The irony here is that her unique experience is meeting another her coming toward her or being frightened to death of meeting another image of herself walking toward her and yet this fear isolates her from everyone else the type of thing that she's afraid of is the meeting of of herself but she's also she's also quite alone and and then of course the chapter ends with her walking part of the way home with some of the other people who are acting this out and then having to walk alone the rest of the way and being frightened to death finally seeing it ahead of her and having to run into the house before it gets her, right? we've all kind of had that experience, right? Where you're like, you're out somewhere and you have this like blind, unreasoning, weird terror that you know is like mostly your fancy, but you're like, someone is behind me and I must go. You know, it's it's that kind of thing, except there really is this weird thing happening to her. This is a strange book because there are so many starts. So we have this first... Chapter that lays out this problem that Pauline is having. It lays out the situation of the drama that's being rehearsed. And then we have chapter two, Via Mortis, The Way of the Dead, that picks up with an entirely different character. One of the poor who had to build up part of the hill after, after some damage had been done to some of the buildings. Basically, it's the story of a workman having really nothing to live for and feeling completely forgotten by society just drops out and hangs himself. After he hangs himself, he finds that he's still walking around through the city, only now he can't die. And that's kind of where we leave him by the end of this chapter. All he knew of the comfort of the world met only more pain. He got awkwardly to his feet. He must be quick. He was not very quick. Something that was he dragged at him, and as he crawled to the edge, dragged more frantically at something still in him. He had supposed he had wanted to die, and only at the last even he discovered that he wanted also not to die. Unreasonably and implacably, he wanted not to die, but also he wanted not to live, and the two rejections blurred his brain and shook his body. He half struggled to his feet in his agony. He twisted round and hung half over his back to the abyss. He clutched at the rope meaning to hold it and release it as he fell to such an extreme of indecision pretending decision did his distress drive him and then as the circling movement of his body ended twining the rope once more round his neck he swayed and yelped and knew that he was lost and fell He fell, and as he fell, he thought for a moment he saw below him a stir as of an infinite crowd, or perhaps so sudden and universal was it, the swift rush of a million insects towards shelter, away from the shock that was he. The movement in the crowd, in the insects, in the earth itself passed outward towards the unfinished houses, the gaps and holes and half built walls, and escaped. When at last he knew in his dazed mind that he was standing securely on the ground, He knew also, under the pale light which feebly shone over the unfashioned town, that he was still alone. So this fascinating moment of, like, just after this guy takes his own life suddenly finding himself more or less in the same situation he was in before.
3: There's also a really great line in here is without the knowledge of his capacity of death, however much you fear it, man is desolate, which I think is, is very intriguing to think about. (laughs) It's true though. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we could expound on that. The knowledge of his capacity of death, but without, without that knowledge, man is desolate. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, we, we tend to think sometimes that we're immortal and we're not, and because we think that we are immortal, we sometimes do some things that that we shouldn't. But I'm, I'm sure, as always with Williams, there's more to it than, than that. I just really like that phrase, man is desolate.
0: Yeah, and it, and it goes on, this had gone. He had no chance whatever. This last thing that he can kind of do, he can't do anymore. He no longer has the power even to die because he's already used that power. Uh, and also hints at the way in which people, people, of course, do dream not to die, but an existence without purpose of some kind, right? Without the good drawing you or God or, or whatever else is a desolate existence. Again, I feel, I feel loath to bring up Queen Ballad who wants to live forever. For from from Highlander, but uh, it came up in the last Charles Williams book. yeah this idea that living forever is not necessarily um, a great thing by the way readers or listeners sorry this is a a chapter that takes place um, during this man's suicide well before the action in chapter one so that by the time we meet him he's a ghost still kind of wandering around battle hill Carter, Sophie Burkhart, Megan Logston. thank you for joining us, and I'm looking forward to continuing to talk with you about Descent into Hell. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Please do pick up a copy of Descent into Hell, and I'll link to a Kindle edition, at least in the show notes. It is worth the read. Hopefully, we've at least pointed out some of its good points. Thank you all, and I'll see you next week.
3: encounter full of joy unscheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict to Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.